pray with me this morning? Father, we come uh, just humbly before you this morning and recognizing that we have a lot of thoughts uh, in our mind and a lot of words that have come out of our mouth. And simply we ask that we would be quiet and that we would be still. Father, that our hearts would be um, quiet before you. Father, we desperately need to hear from you this morning. Father, I ask that your word indeed would speak, that it would speak with great power and great might. Father, that it would come not uh, in mere word, but in power. Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would be with your word, which you inspired, your holy and perfect word, your word to us. And you would speak so clearly to our hearts and so clearly to our lives that we might not leave this place um, unaffected, that we might not leave this place different, and that we might not leave this place not having a word from you, not hearing from you. And so, Spirit, come. uh, Soften our hearts. Make them moldable. uh, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And, Spirit, come. Change our hearts. Help us to see Jesus for all that he is. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken uh, throughout the times and throughout the ages, but in this age, you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, the eternal God, uh, the one who uh, dwelled with you from all eternity, who humbled himself to come as a man, to come as a child, to be our perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sins. And you have revealed yourself, you have spoken to us in the person of Jesus. We're so grateful for him. Father, now we ask again, uh, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and obedient hearts and lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You guys may be seated. At this point, we're going to take up our offering. And so uh, as the guys are getting that ready, encourage you to, uh, to give joyfully and generously, uh, not out of obligation, but because God has indeed spoken to us and been so generous with us. And so the guys are going to do that. After we're done, we'll let the kids go, and we'll jump into our sermon. For everyone else, um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Judges, um, and we will be hovering around chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. To turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter, um, chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have your Bibles, no big deal. Uh, the text will be on the screen. So again, Judges, chapter 11. And if you want to find your spot, we'll be starting in verse 29 uh, with our text this morning. Uh, we've in a, been in the midst of a series on the book of Judges, and it's uh, called The Downward Spiral. And we've been looking at uh, the judges uh, in the history of Israel, and today we come to our fifth judge uh, by the name of Jephthah. So that is, that is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, by way of introduction, a quick story. Uh, I read an article uh, the other day uh, that I found to be pretty interesting. Uh, there was a, a researcher, and I want to get... Uh, the name right here, uh, Ruth Berenda, uh, did some pretty interesting research on conformity and peer pressure and its effects uh, on society and on people and our tendency to kind of go with the flow, if you will. And so they, they, uh, her and her research team did a very simple experiment. And the experiment that they essentially did is they would bring in several groups of people, 10 at a time, and they would do some, uh, some simple experiments and ask them some simple questions. And one of the questions that they would ask uh, these 10 people, they would show them, Uh, line A and line B and line C, and each of the three lines would be of different length. And what they would do is they would ask them the very simple question, um, which line is the longest out of this group, line A, line B, or line C? And so they did this, um, but what one of the persons in the experiment didn't know is that nine of the other people were... um, uh, were there, and they had previously been given different instructions. And so what they did is they had, take, uh, they had taken these nine people and essentially said, regardless of what the instruction says, I want you to vote 
every time for the second longest line. And so they would show line A, line B, line C. And what I want you to do is vote for the second longest time, even if the professor says vote for the longest time, uh, for the longest line. And so they were, they, in each group, if you will, they would have one stooge, for lack of a better word. And that person, uh, they were obviously interested in that person's response to the group's decision to choose the second longest line. And so, uh, to make a long story short, the article essentially said that uh, time after time, uh, more often than not, uh, the nine people would uh, would vote for the second longest line, and they would watch the one kind of person who is being uh, set up, and the person would look around and kind of be confused and not, you know, kind of think... Am I missing something here? Um, and the, the shocking result is that out of their experience, 75% of the time, 75% of the time, that one person who's being set up, guess, guess what? They voted along with the group. Even though very clearly, very plainly, they could tell that that second line, or whatever line it was, was not the longest. They went against their senses, against what they thought was right, and they conformed with the group. So... I guess my question to you is, you is if, if you were in that group, would you, would you be the one to vote? I don't know. That'd be a really tough, tough thing to do. Wouldn't it be to go against, uh, you know, nine out of ten people in the room? Uh, the point is this. Uh, this morning, we're going to jump into the story of Jephthah. He's the fifth judge, and we're going to see him uh, conforming to the culture or the people around him. Uh, what we see in the story of Jephthah is that of conformity. I've called, uh, I've called the sermon Canaanite Christianity, and uh, kind of an odd title, but the reason why I called it Canaanite Christianity is essentially what we see is Jephthah, Israel's judge, who is supposed to deliver his people uh, from the Canaanites, actually ends up becoming more and more like the Canaanites around him. More and more in his actions does he look like those... Uh, around him. He is like the one person who, the 75%, who chooses to conform, if you will. And so what I hope we can see is uh, a couple of things this morning. Really, two what I have called clues to conformity. Two clues to conformity. And what I mean by that is two clues uh, from the life of Jephthah, Jephthah, interesting name. I may call him Jeff if that's okay with you. We'll see. Uh, two clues from the life of Jephthah that I think will help us see when we are like him, close to conformity, some clues for our lives when we can see when we are close to conforming to the evils of the culture around us and becoming close to Canaanite Christianity. So what I want to do this morning is uh, kind of summarize the story for you. Um, We're going to kind of camp in chapter 11, but the story of Jephthah actually begins in chapter 10. And so I want to try my best here to kind of summarize the story of Jephthah. And we have kind of three parts leading up to our story in chapter 11. And so the first section, if you will, is found in chapter 10, and it starts in verse 6. Essentially, the first section uh, I've entitled, Israel's Complete Corruption. It's kind of the introduction to the story, if you will. And what we really see happening uh, in the introduction is, is kind of what we've seen in the past. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, they begin to worship idols. Uh, they begin to worship the Baals and the other gods of the people. Interestingly enough, we get an odd detail here. We get the names of seven idols or seven deities, false gods, if you will, uh, that God's people are are worshiping. And in the Israelite mind, the number seven indicates completion. And so the author here wants us to see just how completely God's people have fallen away, just how completely they are uh, into idolatry. 
And so we see that uh, as times before, they worship idols, and then what God does is brings an oppressor. And this time, he brings an oppressor, uh, a, a nation, if you will, by the name of Ammon, or the Ammonites. And so this is pretty typical, typical for us. God brings oppressors. Um, and we, again, we get a little bit more information in this first section. Uh, interestingly enough, if you were to read it, what uh, Israel does is they cry out to the Lord like they typically do. Help us. We're being oppressed. And God, unlike the other times where he immediately raises up an oppressor, this time God speaks to them. And essentially what he says is, why don't you cry out to those other gods? Why don't you cry out to those other gods that you're serving? Let's see if they can help you. And that's about it. That's, that's how he responds to them. And so interesting, interestingly enough, what we see Israel saying is, God, that's fine. We've sinned against you, so do whatever you would like to do to us. And then comes this little phrase, but just save us. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing here. But just save us. God, do whatever you want. Do whatever you see is fit. Just save us. Just do what we want you to do. And so we will see a continued theme here. But in the first section, we see Israel bargaining with God. They begin to bargain with God. God, do whatever you want. But really, just do what we want you to do, which is save us. So we see the story is introduced. Uh, The second section begins in verse 17 of chapter 10 and moves on to verse 11 of chapter 11. And I've called it in uh, Jephthah introduced. And so here we see the introduction of our hero, our hero, if you will. Again, the judges get worse and worse by the name of Jephthah. Um, So we see uh, the Ammonite army is coming up uh, to battle against Israel like they typically would. Uh, They were coming to oppress them. And in particular, they're coming to a region by the name of Gilead. It was kind of like a region, you know, kind of like the Metroplex region in Dallas or the Chicagoland region. Uh, it came out, they came against the region of uh, Gilead. And so uh, the oppressors are upon them. And essentially what we see is then the story turns to introduce us to our judge by the name of Jephthah. And we find out several interesting things about Jephthah. Essentially, what we find out is that he is the greatest warrior in the region. So I don't know how we could liken him to, but he's the best of the best. He's the best fighter. He's the best hero, if you will, in that region. And so this is looking good. He's a good hero. But he has some baggage, if you will. There are some things about him that, well, aren't so great. And what what we see is that Jephthah, uh, though he's a mighty warrior, uh, is the son of a prostitute. And what we see is that his family, his half-brothers, if you will, essentially said, we don't like you, get out of the house. And so he has been run off from his house. He uh, goes off, and essentially the text says that he gathers around him a, a, a band of evil men, worthless men, if you will. So essentially what this guy is, is he's like a raider. He's out there, he has these, you know, bad men, kind of crooks with him, and they just go on these raids. But he's a great fighter. And so there he is, and the town people of Gilead, his family, says, we really need you, Jephthah. We know that we kicked you out. We know that we treated you wrong. We know that we said some things about you that weren't good, but we're in a bind. We're in a bind. And so would you come fight the Ammonites for us? And you can imagine how Jephthah would take something like that. Essentially, he says, well, that's not what you said to me a few years ago when you kicked me out of the house. You know what I mean? After some bargaining, again, we see this theme continuing. After some bargaining, we see Jephthah essentially saying, okay, I will lead you against these Ammonites if you make me king, essentially, head, ruler. If you let me rule over you, I'll be, I'll fight for you. And so he wheels and deals, and the people of Gilead say, okay, 
we'll make you king. Even though we don't like you and we kick you out, we'll make you king. And so we see Jephthah introduced, and the story ends kind of with some bargaining, if you will. So we've seen the setup. Israel is being oppressed. We've seen the hero introduced, Jephthah. Uh, They make a bargain uh, with him. And then the third section before we get into our text is uh, found in verse 12 through 28. And I called it Jephthah's, Jeff's, if you will, diplomacy. And so Jeff, even though he's a mighty warrior, um, he begins with diplomacy. And so essentially what he does is, if we can get that last bullet... Essentially what he does is he tries the diplomatic route uh, with these guys. And so to make a long story short, he sends a messenger to the king of Ammon and he says, hey, what's the deal? Why are you guys fighting me? And so he sends a messenger back and he says, well, the reason we're fighting you is because 300 years ago you took some land from me. And so we want it back. If you give it back, we won't fight you, is essentially what he says. And so Jephthah goes on this pretty long discourse about, you know, 16 verses long, and he makes an argument He's bargaining, if you will, with the king. And essentially what he says is three points. He says, first of all, the land in question was never yours in the first place. It was the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Kind of confusing, right? They have their history wrong. He says, it's not your land to begin with. He says, when we came up from the promised land, the Amorite king came against us. We won. Our God gave us the land. So why are, you, why are you whining about it? And then he kind of cl- concludes his argument by saying, and that happened 300 years ago. You're coming against us. You're fighting us over land that was taken away, not from you even, 300 years ago. So the story concludes with the Ammonite king saying, whatever, I'm going to fight you anyways. And so that's where we land, if you will. And so I want to kind of camp in chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. That's gotten us to the point where we are in Jephthah's story, and we see what I would call Jephthah's vow. This is where we're going to camp, and so uh, I think we'll see a couple, couple points, a couple clues to conformity, if you will. And so we begin in verse 29 through 40, and uh, I'll just go ahead and start by reading verse 29. Essentially what we see is that it's time for battle, diplomacy didn't work, and so Jephthah is rallying the troops, and the Spirit of God comes upon him uh, to rally the troops and to fight. And so we see that. And verse 29 it says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, his own town, region if you will, and Manasseh, and, played on, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So essentially, he's gathering troops. It's go time. Time for battle. He's gathering troops. The Lord is with him. The Lord is is enabling him to do this. And then we come to the part of the text where the story gets interesting. Um, It gets dicey. Uh, We have questions of the text. Um, What we've seen from Jephthah before, and and I tried to make this point, even though we didn't read these verses, is that he is a bit of a wheeler and a dealer. He is a guy who likes to cut a bargain. He likes to make a deal. Um, He likes to manipulate those that he's working with, if you will. And we see him begin to do that that with God as he goes into battle. We've seen, uh, interestingly enough, Israel do that before. Remember, Israel says, do whatever you want, God, just save us. (laughs) Whatever you want, just save us. They're bargaining with God. We see Jephthah doing that with the the city of Gilead, with the men of Gilead. He says, I'm going to bargain with you. You're going to make me king, then I'll do it. We see him doing that with the king of Ammon. And now, now, He begins to do that with God. So read with me Jephthah's vow, starting in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, 
Then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And here's what he's going to do. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so we see Jephthah, I think wrongly so, bargaining with God. He's a wheeler. He's a dealer. And for some reason, for some reason, he thinks that he needs to barter with God. He thinks that the spirit upon him is not enough. He thinks that God's history and precedent of delivering his people through the judges that he has chosen is not enough. He thinks he needs to make a, a deal with God. And so he begins, he begins to bargain with God. Um, Quick stories, uh, just to kind of illustrate this point. I think Jephthah, as I said before, is a wheeler and a dealer. He likes to cut deals. Do you guys know anyone, and you don't have to raise your hand or say names unless you just want to get in trouble with your wife or spouse or something, but do you guys know of anyone who's just a really good dealer? You know what I mean? Like they're really good at negotiating. Do you guys know anyone, anyone kind of have that mental picture in their mind? Someone? Okay. A few of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, as I begin to think about this, I don't mean to paint her in a negative light, but my mother-in-law is very, very good at this. And she happened to be here last Sunday, and I told a story about her. And now she's here. She's not here, so I'm going to keep talking about her. But um, she is very, very good at cutting a deal. Um, it, it amazes me, and I think she's not at all like myself or my wife. Um, but she can... She's really, really good at getting her way with people. It's amazing. And so anytime we're somewhere and we're like, hey, we need something to be done... We just send my mother-in-law, you know, we're like, go. And she goes and takes care of it. Uh, a couple, I guess a couple illustrations come to mind. Uh, first, uh, last summer we went on vacation in St. Louis. And essentially what we had is we stayed at a place where we had a couple, a couple rooms for three families. And one of the rooms was like a suite, you know. So it was like a small room and a big room. And then we had another kind of single room. Uh, to make a long story short, my, my son can't sleep very well, and he still doesn't. And so we came to realize that my seven or eight month old at that point was not going to be able to sleep with a three-year-old and a six-year-old right next door. And so we needed an additional room. And so uh, my mother-in-law is like, I'll get right on it. And we're like, something's going to happen. <laughs> this is good. And so she gets right on it. And, you know, we're up there watching the kids. And it's about 30 minutes, 45 minutes has gone by. And we're like, She's wheeling and dealing, you know. We're going to see what's going to happen. And to make a long story short, she comes up. And what she does is she gets us at a whole other suite, not just like a single room. She gets us a whole other suite so that my niece and nephew, who you know, were going to stay in our room, could go for less than what we were paying for both. Um, I mean, she, she cut an incredible deal. I'm like, what did you have to do to get that done, you know? She's like my secret, you know, I'm like, okay, it's just amazing, she can wheel and deal, another quick story, uh, Shelly conveys this story to me, when they were in, uh, in France, in Europe one time, and, and again, my wife and I are, are not like this at all, I'm, I'm the kind of person who's like, you know, it costs this, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm like, yes, that sounds great, you know, I'm not at all confrontational, I don't at all engage in that, and Shelly's like that too, but they were out, um, you know, shopping one day, and they were looking for, you know, trinkets and stuff, and um, Shelly conveys the story that, again, my mother-in-law, wheel and deal, and deal, and she's like, how much is this? But she couldn't speak French, and so she would speak through Shelly. And so Shelly would ask in French, and they would, you know, communicate that way. And uh, <laughs> she, she wanted my wife to ask, you know, would you, take, would you take less? Would you take five? Would you take four? What if about three? You know, she was wheeling and dealing, but she was having to do it through Shelly. And Shelly, right, 
She hates that. She just hates that. And so, <laughs> the long story short, um, not to rat out on you, baby, but um, <laughs> Shelly said, eventually what I ended up saying was, Mom, I, I really don't know if I can translate that well. <laughs> I, really, I really don't know. Fibbing? Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't, right? <laughs> but she's like, I can't say that, Mom. Sorry. <laughs> but my mother, I think, and my mother-in-law is, is fantastic at this. But as I, as I see Jephthah, I see my mother-in-law in that. And really, while my mother-in-law is, is, is not bad, she doesn't take it to a, you know, to, in a bad way, what we see Jephthah doing is he's crafty and he's cunning and he cuts deals with people. But what he begins to do is he begins to think that he can do that with God. He begins to think that he can wheel and deal and manipulate God to do what he wants. And so this is essentially what he's doing with this vow. And so what we see is we continue on with the story. Um, we get a, a short account of the battle scene, uh, but it's really, it's really short. Um, so we'll go ahead and read that, verses 32 through 33. The author chooses here to focus more on the vow and not at all on the battle scene. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel, Kiramim, great Hebrew name, uh, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And so we see this vow, and he says, I'm going to give whatever happens. We see he has the victory. But a big, a couple questions really linger here. And the first question is, which I've been hinting at, is was this really necessary? I mean, was it necessary for him to say, Lord, I'll, I'll make you a burnt offering if you give me the battle, was it even necessary? I don't think it was. First of all, the Spirit of God had come upon him mightily for battle. It wasn't necessary. He had already voiced his, uh, his um, confidence that God would give him the victory as God had in the past. Essentially, what we see is that Jephthah is acting much like a Canaanite. He is acting very much like the people who he is fighting against because Essentially, what the Canaanites would do uh, in their religious system is it was built all around manipulation. What they would do is sacrifice and um, kill all sorts of things uh, to appease their gods, to manipulate their gods, to get them to do what they want. And here is our hero, Jephthah, doing the exact same thing. I guess the second question is, not only was it necessary, but... The big question is, what did he intend to offer? If you've not heard the story before, this question should be, should be lingering in your mind. He said that he would offer whatever. Whatever comes out of my doors, I'm going to offer it to you. And so the question remains, what was he thinking? What was he thinking about? What was he wanting to offer? A burnt offering was essentially you kill the animal and you burn it up completely as a sacrifice to God. So what was he intending? Um... Some commentators, I think, um, wrongly suggest, but interestingly suggest, that what would normally first come out of the house when someone would come back from a war would be the guy's wife. And so uh, some commentators suggest that he, uh, you know, he and his wife had a fight that night. And so he's thinking, I'll kill my wife. But uh, we're not going to go that route, I don't think. I think what he meant was an animal. That was normally a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering. And so then you kind of think, well, how does that work? Why would a, you know, I don't know about you, but when you come to my house and you open the front door, typically a goat doesn't just pop right on out. You know what I mean? And if you do, then we'll talk afterwards. But it's just kind of weird, you know? What's that all about? 
Well, pretty simply, this is what it was. Like back in those days, you would have kind of a big stone fence, kind of like a courtyard, if you will, where all of the animals would graze, and then you would have the house. And all of that was considered your home. And so what Jephthah is doing here is he anticipates, I think really clearly, he's going to come home, and like numerous times before, there would be a goat or a cow or a chicken or something that is in his courtyard that would walk out, and he would offer that to the Lord. All that to say... What we see Jephthah doing is he's wheeling, he's dealing, he's manipulating God. And so our first clue of conformity, our first clue from Jephthah's life that we, like Jephthah, might be conforming to our culture is that of manipulation. And so we have to ask the question, can we act like Jephthah? I mean, can we be like Jephthah? Can we wheel and deal with God like Jephthah is trying to wheel and deal with God? I would suggest that most certainly we can do that. found a, what I find, a pretty humorous video that I'd like to show now that I think can show, highlight, and maybe a humorous way how we can do that, and then we'll talk some applications. Obviously, meant to be humorous, but I think that we can be very much like, like Jephthah. I think we can very much, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, manipulate God. I think one way that we can do that is have a, what I would call a you owe me attitude. I think we can have a, a you owe me attitude with God. What I mean by that is we, we think in our mind's eyes and maybe even say it, God, I go to church regularly. I'm there. Every time the door is open, I'm there. Don't you really, don't you owe me a, a better job than the one that I have? God, I, I give regularly to the church. I'm faithful. I always give. Shouldn't I deserve just a little financial security? Don't you, don't you owe me that? God, I really try to live for you. I really try to live my life in a, in a way that's honoring to you. Don't I just deserve to be healthy? God, I serve you in this ministry, Awana, Sunday school, whatever it might be. I'm serving you hard in this ministry. The least you could do is make my marriage bearable. And we have this you owe me attitude with God. And I think what happens when we have this you owe me attitude with God is then when he doesn't deliver, when he doesn't become our celestial butler and give us exactly what we need, then what happens is we become very frustrated and we become very mad and we become very angry with God. Quick story. When I was uh, in high school, my senior year, um, I had been a Christian probably about two years. I became a Christian when I was 15 or 16 and uh, had, was a pretty young Christian, was just now beginning to grow in my faith beginning to learn to read and love the Bible and pray and be more active in church. And I was, you know, I was <laughs> in my mind's eye, I thought I was doing pretty good, you know. I was 18, I was making better decisions for the Lord, and uh, I was really growing in my faith. And something that I was kind of into, if you promise not to laugh at me too much, was a science fair. Yes, I'm a science dork. Uh, but my junior year, as I've shared before, um, me and my partner went to the International Science Fair. Big deal. Actually, it was kind of a big deal. Like it was a big deal. People from all over the world, international students, science fair, right? Okay. So anyways, we went the year before and I thought, man, this is a lock. We're certainly going to go again. We're one year better. I'm one year smarter and I'm walking with the Lord, you know? And so surely the Lord's going to deliver this victory into my hands. Long story short, me and my partner um, went to the, you know, kind of the regional science fair and we, we lost. Uh, we didn't even get close to winning. And we had a really good project. I mean, really good project, really significant project. And we lost. And I remember in my 
younger days of, of the faith, having this you owe me attitude with the Lord. I mean, seriously, God, I'm trying to live for you. Uh, I'm making better decisions. I'm going to church now and I'm actually liking it. You know, what's the deal? What's the deal? You owe me this. And when we get mad because God doesn't give us what we want, it may be an indication that we're acting like Jephthah. I think another way we can do that is we tend to think sometimes that our circumstances, our circumstances are contingent. They hang on our obedience to God. So that if we are obedient to God, he is therefore necessarily uh, obligated to bless us. And we tend to think this way, don't we? At least I do sometimes. Okay. I know I'm, several things that I'm supposed to do to pursue God. So I'm supposed to read my Bible, and, and I'm supposed to pray, and I'm supposed to be regular at church, and I'm supposed to give financially, and all of these things. And so I tend to think, okay, I wake up this day, it's going to be a good day. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to you know, serve my family, and the day is going to go well. And so if, if I do this, I'm going to get to work, and the boss is going to compliment me and maybe even give me a raise. And my children are going to be little angels that day. And my spouse, when I get home, is going to have dinner ready and a smile to greet me, and the day is just going to go wonderful. But... If we forget, if we just happen to forget to pray that morning, or if we just happen to forget to read our Bibles, well, then we know that the day is going to go poorly. Our kids are going to be grumpy. We're going to have a flat tire. Our spouse is going to be irritable. Our, the client at work is just going to be a bear to deal with. Can't we get caught up in thinking along these lines and become like a Jessa? I don't know about you, but I, I know in the uh, the crevices of my heart, especially in times of difficulty, we make deals with God, don't we? I mean, I do. I know I have before. I make a deal with God, just like Jephthah. We begin by saying, just like Jephthah, if you, four words, if you, then I. If you, God, do this, then I. And we wheel and we deal and we make deals with God. God, I'll, I'll promise I'll clean up my language. I'll clean, I'll clean up my cussing. I just need that promotion. I just need it. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church for a whole month, a whole month, and not, I'm going to not miss a Sunday. Oh, just please help my child sleep. That's, that's what typically goes through my mind, especially after a night like last night. Um, uh, God, I, I promise, okay, I'll up my giving. I'll up my giving. I just can't stand my job anymore. And we make deals. We wheel and deal with God. And we become just like Jephthah. And so the first clue to conformity is we begin to manipulate God. Continuing on in verses 34 through 40, we kind of see the conclusion of the story. How's it going to end? Jephthah has made this vow. Whatever, pretty ambiguous, comes out of my house, I will offer as a sacrifice to you. Short account of the battle because he wants to focus on what's going to happen. So let's read this together. Verses 34 through 40, the story concludes. The Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah after the victory, and behold, what comes out? And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Even worse, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Verse 35, and as, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Notice, you, he's blaming, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back 
Notice that. I cannot take back my vow. A little irony here. Jephthah means he opens. And Jephthah says, I have opened my mouth from the Lord. Continuing on. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do you do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites? So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. So she has a request. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down, uh, go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And on the end of two months, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her, notice this, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year to year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four years, uh, four days in the year. And so Jephthah goes through with his vow. Pretty, pretty bad. Pretty, pretty shocking, is it not? Not only is it shocking that he's coming home and he's so excited, he just had victory and... Oh, my little girl walks through the doors and I remember my vow. It must have hit him like a ton of bricks. And the irony here, um, it's thick. I mean, the irony is thick. Jephthah, who sought to manipulate God through a vow, just like the Canaanites did, ends up sacrificing his daughter, ends up giving his daughter's life as a sacrifice, just like the Canaanites did. And this is the irony. The Canaanites were known for sacrificing their children to their deities. And so he becomes just like them. And so the question, I think, is, uh, is this what God wanted? Did, did Jephthah act rightly? Did you notice that he said, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. I can't take back my vow. What am I going to do? And she, man, she's like a heroine here, even though maybe an ignorant heroine. She's like, go ahead. You said so. And she becomes Isaac. But she dies, unlike Isaac. Is this what God wanted? Well, very simply, no. Very simply, no. And this kind of leads us to the second clue of conformity. The first clue of conformity is that of manipulation. We seek to manipulate God. Here, the second clue of conformity is that of ignorance. We are ignorant. Jephthah was ignorant of God's word. A couple reasons. If Jephthah knew his Bible well, he would know in numerous places that God essentially told them, hey, when you go into the land... Do not sacrifice your children to me because that's what the pagans do. That's what the Canaanites do. You do not sacrifice human life for me. But Jephthah was apparently ignorant of this. He did not know that that was what God wanted. He was treating God like he was some other pagan pagan god. Secondly, not only did he not know that, uh, but he... Miss this little bit in Leviticus. How many of you guys have ever read Leviticus before? Yeah, go you. So uh, did you make it all the way through in one reading? It's just thrilling, isn't it? Um, it, Leviticus is is an excellent book, and it teaches us about God's holiness and how we're to uh, rightly relate uh, to a holy God. In Leviticus, Leviticus 27, essentially what we see is that God makes a way for people who make a hasty vow, much like Jephthah did, For people who make a hasty vow, he makes a way out. The long and short of it is what you could do is you could say, God, I'm going to give this amount of money to get out of this vow. 
It's in Leviticus 27 at the very beginning. And so Jephthah, if he knew his Bible, should have known that there was a way out. There was a way that he didn't have to sacrifice his daughter. He could have redeemed her, is the Old Testament word. He could have redeemed her. But what we see very clearly is is, uh, he was ignorant. He was ignorant of God's word. And thus, we see the unintended consequences of his actions. The unintended consequences of his manipulation. He tried to manipulate God. And we see the unintended consequences of of his ignorance of God's word. That is, Jephthah didn't intend, I don't believe, to sacrifice his daughter. In fact, I would guess he never dreamed in his wildest imagination that his daughter would come out. Um, But we see, unfortunately, he manipulates God, he's ignorant of God's word, and there are unintended consequences to that. How many of you have ever seen, and I'm sure you have, uh, there are commercials on TV often for like particular drugs, and... um, I, I find them quite amusing because, uh, you know, I don't, there are drugs for all sorts of things. But essentially they say, buy our drug. This is what it's, it's used for. You know, it'll help bring down your blood pressure or whatever. And then, like for the next 20 seconds of the commercial, you know what I'm talking about? For the next 20 seconds of the commercial, it's like, unintended consequences or side effects are blah, 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 blah. You know, your head might fall off. Your arm might go numb. Your heart might stop. Your foot might bleed. You know, like, you might die from old you know what I mean? And it goes on and on and on. And that was, that's not the intent of the drug. When they made the drug, they intended it to fix things, right? But the unintended consequences, they have to lay out for you. And I can't help but thinking, good heavens, I think I'd rather die from whatever I'm struggling with than, than to take that and have my ear fall off, you know? Um, but this is, this, is what, this is what we see. Jephthah He manipulates God, he's ignorant of God's word, and there are some very, very serious unintended consequences. Dr. Thomas Constable says this, bringing it home a little bit. Ignorance or disregard of God's word is not only unfortunate, but it is dangerous. It's dangerous. And that's exactly what we see happening with Jephthah. So what about us? What about us? What, how, how can we fall into this trap of ignorance of God, God's word? As I, as I chewed on this, essentially what you can do is you can think about anything that God says, anything that God has revealed in his word to us, and you can think, what if I didn't know that? What if I didn't obey that? What, did, what if I didn't seek to live my life accordingly? And you can come up with a whole smattering of possible, really bad things. Because God, when he gives us instructions in his word, uh, not meant to be harmful, not meant to restrain us, it's meant to teach us, this is, this is what is best for you. Just like I put constraints and restrictions on my son, uh, because I know it's best for him, um, so, so does God. So we can be like this as well. If we are unaware that the Bible clearly says, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, don't, don't take things into your hands we can see the dangerous consequences of having a life that is consumed with revenge, that is consumed with trying to get back with that person. If we don't know that the Bible says, sex, really good thing, meant for marriage, I intended it that way. It's like a fire. Um, It's beautiful uh, in a fireplace. It's, It's meant to be warm and loving and good and nurturing. But that's why there's a fireplace. But if you have a fire without this proper setting, without the fireplace, can burn up your whole house. And that's how sex before marriage is. Um, If we are unaware of that, it can possibly lead to all sorts of trouble, emotional hurt, 
unfulfilled desires, all sorts of things. If we don't know that, uh, if we don't know that the Bible says that when we become married, that we are one with our spouse, that we are one flesh with them, what that means is if we don't realize that, our backbiting, our criticism, our nagging, essentially is hurting ourselves. We're hurting ourselves as we do that, if we don't recognize that truth. If we don't know that the, Jesus says, how, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? That's quite a bit. Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Infinite amount of times. He says, live a life of forgiveness. But if we don't know that, if we don't live by that, I don't know if you've ever struggled with not forgiving, but you end up hurting yourself more than the person who hurts you because it grows and you're bitter and that person enslaves you <laughs> because you can't forgive them. All sorts of things. We could go on and on. But the point here is very simply that ignorance of God's word is, is devastating and it's dangerous. And this happens to us all of the time. And so we see the story concludes here. Jephthah, who is Israel's savior, ends up becoming just like the Canaanites. He ends up raising his hand at the line that is second longest. And he goes with the flow, and he brings Israel and himself into devastation. Into devastation. So we're going to do this. We're going to close um, with a song. So our worship team is going to come up. So come up, guys. And as they do that, we're going to pray. And I'm just going to ask that we have just a quick minute. I want to challenge you to think about these two areas of your life. How maybe you might be more of a Canaanite Christian than a Jesus Christ Christian by manipulating God by being ignorant of God's word. I want us to dwell on this briefly. If you want to repent of those things, I encourage you to think about that. Repent. Ask God to help you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this story, I think, points us to Jesus in that um, Jephthah's daughter was an unintended human sacrifice. It was not right. But what we see is that there is only one human sacrifice that is acceptable to God the Father. And that is his own son, Jesus Christ. Because he, unlike Jephthah's daughter, died for sin. Not for his sin, for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of the entire world, so that we might be connected with God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for myself and for my friends. Father, we can see Jephthah in ourselves very much. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for thinking that we can manipulate you, for thinking that we can wheel and deal and get you to do what we want as opposed to submitting for your will and seeking your will for our life. Father, forgive us for our ignorance of your word because it causes us to be like those around us, like our culture around us, and it has devastating consequences. Father, may we strive to know your word, not because we have to, but because it's for our good, it's for our joy. Father, you've given us commands and boundaries and freedom so that we can experience life in the full. That's what you desire. So we ask now as we contemplate for a brief moment that you would work on our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us if we're doing well in these areas. Spirit, we ask that you would come. And if there is a person here um, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, if they don't, if they've never placed their faith in the perfect human sacrifice, I pray that they would do that today and find life and joy and peace and meaning in life. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming to worship with us this morning. See you next week.